gentlemen, referee Jason Herzog has called a stop to this contest at one minute, 44 seconds of round number three. Declared the winner by TKO Giga Ninja Chikante. The winner by split decision and still undefeated, the problem child, What's up, guys? Welcome back. This is actually round two of episode 103 of the DLSS podcast. Gosh, I, I don't know. I had the technological equivalent of my dog ate my homework. I swear to you guys, it was pretty much like the top, top of the line, best episode I think I've ever recorded, and it just disappeared into the ether. I don't know what happened. Specifically remember saving it, but ultimately it just wasn't there when I went back to upload it, and so we're doing it again. Uh, again, because it was lightning in a bottle, I doubt I'll be able to recreate it at the same quality, but I'll do my best. Uh, we're, of course, going to be breaking down and recapping the fights from UFC Vegas 35. Giga Chikadze defeated Edson Barboza in the main event, third round TKO. And we're going to discuss the outcome for the boxing match on Sunday between Tyron Woodley and Jake Paul. Um, I'm sure I'm going to miss some of the stuff that I included in the last one, but you guys will never hear it, so you won't know any different. But I do want to give a shout-out to loyal listener Joseph Davis. Uh, he's always engaging me about the show asking me questions, and he and I were going back and forth on Monday uh, about the Jake Paul Tyron Woodley fight. So it, in this stripped-down version of episode 103, I'm essentially going to start by just reading you the text messages that I sent to Joseph, you know, giving him my thoughts on the fight. Maybe a couple follow-up thoughts as they come to me, but again, I'm I'm just trying not to not do the episode, but I am a little bitter at the fact that it got uh, erased. So I'm just trying to make sure to knock it out. Again, go over the results from USC Vegas 35 as well. But keep a lookout, guys, because it's so late in the week. I'm recording this on Wednesday. I'll more than likely be dropping all three episodes that I plan on putting out this week around the same time, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. So this episode, of course, I'm going to do episode six of this segment, Rules, and then the DLSS Pick Show, episode number two, where I'm breaking down and giving my uh, picks for this upcoming weekend's fights. We have another awesome fight night card coming to you from the UFC Apex. Darren Till is fighting Derek Brunson in the main event. Lots of other fun fights on the card as well, so I'm looking forward to breaking that one down. But again, three separate episodes coming out this week. This one, this segment rules number six, and the Picks Podcast number two for this weekend's fight. So with that out of the way, can't forget to mention Dave DeCourcy and the DeCourcy Group, longtime sponsor of the show. Appreciate you, Dave. It was actually super cool because I was able to meet up with him and Blake, uh, Louis Smolka, Alex Perez, and a bunch of other guys over from Timo Yama because we all came out to support Christian Aguilera. Him and his dad have been putting in a lot of work over the last few months to open up a small business, JD's Wings. It's in Placentia off Chapman Avenue. Highly recommend going and checking them out. The wings are delicious. They're baked wings. Uh, a lot of different flavors, great atmosphere, cool painting in the back set up by, uh, done by Tyler Wombles. So it's just really cool to see it all come together, and I highly recommend checking out their candied bacon. That shit is mouth sex. I literally will drive from South Orange County to Placentia for that shit. It is fire. So it was really cool. We were able to get together and support uh, each other. You know, that's what it's about, especially in this small, knit, tight-knit community, the mixed martial arts and combat sports community. That's what it's all about, just trying to support each other and, you know, bring each other up. And so if you guys can go down there and give them some support, that'd be cool. And speaking of support, if you guys need to take any cash out of the equity of your home or if you need to get a loan in order to purchase a home, please do support the people that support the podcast and go to www.thedecourcygroup.com. That's T-H-E-D-E-C-O-U-R-C-Y group. 
com and if you shout out the DLSS podcast, it would really help us out a lot. And so to begin the show, I think what I'm going to do is I think I'm going to actually go over the fights in reverse. I'm going to do the boxing match, the Woodley-Paul fight first, and then I'll, the back end, give you my thoughts and recap the results coming out of UFC Vegas 35. Uh, but before I even get into it, I think some of my listeners might, in fact, need a reminder, like, I don't know about you guys, but I've just, over my life, developed, I feel like, a very good ability to be empathetic and to see things from both sides. Yeah, I think it actually results in an inability to kind of take a firm stance in a lot of cases. I don't necessarily draw a line in the sand. And if you've noticed with my Kelvin Gastelum scorecard, Bobby Green scorecard, and the things I've been doing as of recently, I've been trying to do a better job at taking a firm stance on one side of a particular argument. But you know, it's a skill and a curse that I feel like I do have a very canning ability to see things from all sides or both sides. And in this particular case, like, I don't really understand a lot of the venom that's coming out against Tyron Woodley, you know, as his performance. People are thinking, you know, saying it's fixed, that he took a dive or he let Jake off and all these other things. Like, I don't know. I just think a lot of people that have never really set foot in a boxing ring or a cage, you know, half naked and bearing your soul in front of thousands of people really have no place to criticize someone that does, you know, the man in the arena, so to speak. I mean, yeah, you have the ability to have your commentary and your opinions about things, but the level of vitriol that's coming out, not only against, you know, people like myself that are kind of arguing that that fourth round should have been scored a knockdown, and it doesn't really affect the outcome, which we'll go over, but my point is is that the level of venom that's being spit, for what I see mostly from people that have never even probably stepped foot on a map, never been punched in the face, don't want to know what it's like to spar even, like have no inkling of, of what's going on actually in that type of environment, are just running their fucking mouth and have no idea what they're talking about. But I guess such is life, and you know I'm trying to take a measured and objective approach to analyzing what I see and giving you my opinions based on those objective uh, analysis, but... You know, I obviously have my own inherent bias, which I'm going to bring to the table, and it's, it's unfortunate, but it is the way it is. We all have our own inherent biases. Me being the quote-unquote MMA guy, I actually sincerely appreciate the sweet science that is the sport of boxing. And, you know, granted, this main event wasn't necessarily at the tip of the spear or the most elite-level technical ability, so I understand that. But they were the main event. They did have a fun fight with the characters involved, the storylines in the lead-up. The level of competition that these guys presented each other did provide for some tense moments and some overall entertainment, in my opinion. So, you know, although there was somewhat of a lackluster outcome, I felt like overall the event, the walkouts were fun. Uh, Jake Paul with the whole, like, you know, emergency broadcasting music, then the Purge soundtrack, and then it dropped into the... MGK song Till I Die, the only MGK song I like. And then, of course, Tyron walking out to his new song, like, Let's Go Big. Like, I actually don't I don't mind it. I think it's a lot better than his I'll Beat Your Ass song, if, if I'm being honest. But either way, just a lot of pomp and circumstance and a lot of other things surrounding the actual fight. But all in all, I feel like the event lived up to the hype. That's just my opinion. But as far as the fight itself goes and then the judge's decision, what I want to do now is I'm just literally going to pretty much read the text message that I sent listener Joseph Davison, we were going over what I thought about the, the Paul Woodley fight, and it does go over the scoring. It goes over it round by round, and it even includes what the outcome would have been numerically had that fourth round been scored correctly as a knockdown. So let's do it. And then just for context, the actual judges' scorecards, uh, one of them had it 77-75 for Jake, and one of them had it the same, 77 75 but for Woodley which is a five round to three scorecard for one for both guys and then the third judge and I swear I'm the only one that's even noticing this that uh, Dan DePaulo 
the third scorecard that ultimately ended up making it uh, a split decision, scored the fight 79-74. to Now, if there's no 10-8s on either side or Jake, Jake or Tyron, then there's no way mathematically with an eight-round fight scored with the 10-point month system that you can come to a 79-74 outcome. It doesn't change the outcome of the fight, like who wins or loses, but this judge gave eight. I'm sorry, six rounds to, to Jake and two rounds to Tyron. So six rounds, 10 points apiece, that's 60 points, plus two rounds uh, at nine instead of 10, that's 18. 60 plus 18 is 78, not 79. So I don't know how this person ended up writing a final scorecard of 79-74. But again, doesn't affect the overall outcome. It's just not here nor there, I guess. But just attention to detail. Like if, if nobody else is pointing this out, then are, is, how many times do things like this just get like swept under the rug or not even noticed? I just want to make sure that somebody was pointing it out. But moving on to what I actually thought about the fight, I'm going to try my best to give honest, you know, objective, try to be as least amount of bias as possible and tell you what I thought I saw as far as the actual fight played out. I, I didn't even think, like, the 6-2, I didn't even think that was completely outlandish. I thought 5-3 was a more reasonable scorecard, though. Five rounds to Jake, three t- three rounds to Tyron. Uh, but in boxing, they do actually consider ring generalship and, like, forward pressure. As long as it bears results, uh, they do consider it in their scoring of the round. And, you know, to a certain degree, I feel like it did bear some results, the fact that Tyron was walking him down the whole fight. Um, he was more of the danger threat throughout the fight, in my opinion, as far as the hard shots that had potential for landing and changed the the complexity of the fight. But, it, you know, I don't think that that ring generalship and forward pressure was, was enough in the judges' eyes to sway them in terms of the majority of the rounds. Uh, but I think that that fourth round definitely should have been considered a knockdown. Like, I'm very hard stop. Um, that's something I, I don't understand. It was a 1,000% Alex uh, Bama, shots to Bama. He's way more educated in uh, the realm of boxing and the nuances of the rules. And he responded to the picture that's going around with Jake that was when he was leaning on the ropes said that was a thousand percent should have been considered a technical knockdown. So if if you're considering that and then being generous, obviously, the first three rounds went to Jake, that would make it 38 to 37. Jake, when the fourth round ended right after that fourth round, if scored a 10 to 8, when that fourth round ended, the score would have been 38 to 37. Now, the next four rounds are the ones that are really in question because the one, the judge that gave all the Tyron the scorecard, the 77-75 for Tyron, he actually ended up giving all four of those rounds after the fourth to Tyron on his scorecard. So that's how he got to his score. But it's clear on his particular scorecard that he saw that forward pressure, power shots, uh, you know, as more effective than Jake's lateral movement. You know, Jake was sticking from the outside. He was being mostly an elusive target, skirting the outside of the ring. So, but that judge much to consider the forward pressure and those the threat of the power shots and the power shots that you know were landed. Tyron did land you know half dozen clean hard shots throughout the fight. So that judge obviously gave the all that work more credence. And now, I've talked about it before. There's always some subjectivity that's going to go into a human judge when they're interpreting the scoring criteria, and then trying to watch the fight play out in real time. You know, given the perspective, like physically where they are next to the ring compared to where the fight's taking place. Um, as well as their inherent biases, things like that. There's definitely improvements that you know that can be made. Don't get me wrong, but for the most part, this this is always going to be a catalyst for human error when there's human beings doing it. And a lot of times, it's not even like nefarious or with bad intentions or or uh, corrupt or even intentional. Sometimes when you get really shitty scorecards and outcomes because of poor judging, which is why there really should be more accountability and like a, a formal review process to improve judging. 
and filter out the ones that develop a track record for poor and unexplainable decisions. Now, I emphasize unexplainable because if they have that process in place, then, you know, even if it's a misinterpretation of the criteria or if you can explain your decision, at least they can kind of hone in your, you know, miss the whatever the miscommunication is or the lack of understanding of how the commissions feel that you should be applying this criteria, then maybe, you know, um, shape your judging into a better performance overall. I'm not trying to say that they should have any sort of influence over how you interpret the, the criteria, but if you're grossly considering, like, the criteria in an incorrect way and your decisions always come out in the minority, then that might be something that needs to be looked at. And if that's not something that can be improved upon, then you got to have a system in place in order to get rid of those judges. Now, I personally gave Tyron two out of those four uh, rounds after the fourth round, which gave him a total of three rounds plus the knockdown, right? So if you tabulate my scorecard, that would still actually have Jake winning the fight by one point or two rounds, depending if you're looking at a point or points or rounds, because I'm going to go through it. The first round, Jake, 10 points, nine points for Tyron. Second round for Jake, 10 points, nine for Tyron. Third round for Jake, 10 points, nine for Tyron. So with the fourth round, if it was a scored a 10-8 in Tyron's favor, that's how I would have got to 38-37 by the end of the fourth round. Now, you consider these last four rounds, I gave Jake the fifth. I felt like he actually rallied back, was able to reestablish himself, which was, you know, the only, like, little seed of answers in terms of Jake and whether or not he's really trying to become a real fighter if he's actually progressed in this realm because that was a lot of the questions surrounding this fight or any of his fights if he was ever to face any adversity and whether or not he would be able to fight through it. So, like, you know, as much as I disliked, the guy going in, obviously very reluctant to this whole Jake Paul, Logan Paul experience and foray into the combat sports world. Again, I'm trying to be objective and reasonable, and I feel like I, you know, I'm not saying it's tip of the spear. I'm not saying it's elite world class. I'm not saying he'd beat a cruiserweight, you know, title contender in professional boxing. But from Jake's first fight till this fight, it's clear that there's been a progression of skills, and he's definitely been putting in the work and must have been put under some pressure in training camps for him to be able to push through the adversity of being hurt almost being dropped in the fourth round uh, again by the rules it should have been considered a 10-8 so but the fact that he rallied back in the fifth round was a testament to his skill and his ability to stay calm under pressure and, and keep pushing forward I, I know a lot of people don't like to give credit to Jake in any capacity but I'm trying to call it straight and give credit where credit is due. So I thought I saw Jake bounce back in the 5th, so I gave him the 5th 10 points, 9 to Tyron. And then I thought Tyron won the 6th, Jake won the 7th, and then I felt like Tyron won the last round of the fight, won the 8th round. And if you look at one of the judges uh did agree with me in terms of scoring the 8th round for Tyron, actually two of the judges agree with me there. So if you add all that up, that still ends with a 76-75 scorecard for Jake Paul. So I'm trying to be objective, and I am, quote-unquote, the MMA guy, but if I'm honest with what I saw take place in that fight, even with the round uh, four being scored as a knockdown, it would still have Jake Paul winning the fight by one point. And so if this would have been in place of that ludicrous decision that you know or scorecard that didn't make any sense, then that still would have ultimately ended up with a split decision win for Jake. So uh, that's the way I scored it, and that's the way I feel about it. In terms of giving credit where credit is due, like a lot of people – we're saying that Tyron, you know, was just old, old Tyron. You know, he, you know, he, you could take the fighter, the gloves off the fighter, but you can't take the fighter out of the gloves, and and that he just was the same Tyron that he was in the last few fights of his MMA career, as he had that downward trend. The last four fights 
uh, ending in losses. But, you know, it's clear that he definitely put in the work to shore up any cardio issues people might have thought that he had. And he was pushing the pace this entire fight in terms of, you know, p- moving forward and, and walking Jake down. Granted, he should have, you know, got off more. There was a couple opportunities when Jake was tired and or, you know, a little bit hurt that Tyron did not capitalize on those. So those are mistakes that any O and O or, you know, level lower level, uh, newer professional boxer would make. These are the same kind of mistakes that someone that's not as proficient in this particular sport may make earlier on in their career. So I don't fault him for that. And so credit where credit is due. I think Tyron actually looked as good as we could probably get out of him um, or, or pretty damn close at this stage in his life and his career. He's almost 40 years old. Um, yeah, I'm sure he's kicking himself watching that fight back, seeing those spots that he had Jake in that he didn't capitalize on. So he's going to have to live with that going forward. And, you know, I don't know. I'm sure you guys are already aware, but after the fight, Tyron went up there and was basically talking shit back and forth with Logan and Jake about a rematch. He was saying that he landed the harder shots. He had Jake wobbled. If Jake's not afraid, then go ahead and run it back. And Jake was like, you get the tattoo, definitely get the tattoo in a place that's visible. He put out all this criteria online, but they they made the bet. And it's funny, a lot of people, I think this is another source of why people are so hard on Tyron because they just think that's such a dumbass move. And, you know, I do too, but at the same time, power to somebody that truly does not give a fuck what other people think. And all these people that are criticizing Tyron saying, don't do it, don't do this, don't do that. He says, none of these people were the ones that were there for me. And these were the ones that were talking shit when I was in the MMA world. Granted, he appreciates the the, the fresh love and the support from the MMA community uh, in the lead up to this fight. But he's like, I never, I couldn't listen to these people when they said that I, I had nothing left. How am I supposed to listen to them now? Fuck everybody else. I'm going to do what I want. And what's best for him and the future for his family is to grab another bag, call it selling your soul, doing whatever you want. But he's raising his profile. He's trying to do things with music and other things like that. And, you know, ultimately, I feel like he he came away from this, not uh, you know, not even having to save face. He's the one that's memeing Jake. And he's the one that, like, straight up ate him alive in that face-to-face with Ariel Hawani leading up to it. So I feel like uh, Tyron Woodley, his stock is rose and, I don't care what y'all think. He did his best. I feel like he had a good showing of himself. And anybody who's been watching his career for years and years, watching the upside and then watching the downturn, you definitely know that he took this shit serious. He came in in shape and was not tired. And, you know, he's got some mental scarring over the 40 years of his life. The majority of it been fighting professionally. So, of course, that's going to make him a little bit timid. And that's been a criticism of him, a valid one. Uh, for the last few years now, and I felt like if you're looking at this entire this whole thing objectively, Tyron actually did pretty damn good, and I feel like he did better in this fight than. And I know it's you know considering the opponent is is not what I'm saying. I'm saying better in terms of preparation, better in terms of mindset, better in terms of not getting tired, better in terms of you know being present and wanting to be in there. Obviously, the the financial incentive was important, and him having the chance to knock out. Knock Jake Paul's head off was obviously important to him too, but I'm just saying that he looked good to me. He looked revived. He looked all right. He looked uh, okay, and I feel like the entire event definitely lived up to the hype because for me, going into something like this, understanding the level, I'm not going to go in and expect world-class championship boxing, so therefore I'm not disappointed when the things that provide entertainment in this event don't necessarily come from the level of technique, so... If any of that made sense, again, it's a stripped-down, freaking redheaded stepchild version of the um, description I went over the first time I recorded this podcast before it fucking, like, disappeared on me. 
But I hope that made sense. And if you guys have your opinions, obviously they may differ from mine, and that's totally fine. But if you want to share with me your thoughts or, you know, tell me I'm a fucking idiot, tell me I'm wrong, do it on Apple Podcasts for me, guys. It really helps me out when you engage that platform. So if you can go on there, hopefully still give me a five-star review and uh, tell me your thoughts, not only on these fights, but just if you want to give me some feedback on the podcast. That really does help me out when you guys go on there. So appreciate you uh, when you do. Uh, but that's it for the Paul Woodley stuff, guys. Um, I'm just going to transition now over to UFC Vegas 35. Talk about some real high-level action and some real high-level mixed martial arts. Giga Chikadze defeats Edson Barboza in the main event by a third-round TKO. And this uh, this fight, wow. This fight played out similarly to how I expected it to, but with Giga Chikadze turning it up to 11 and really outperforming my expectations and putting away a perennial top contender, a legend in the sport, a guy that's his resume is just unbelievable across two weight classes in Edson Barboza. So huge victory for Giga. And I'm going to go over a little bit about how I felt like he got that done. Some of the things that allowed him to uh, utilize his his striking style versus Edson's uh, as well as he landed the Giga kick a couple times. Didn't swell up Edson's liver. At least it didn't drop him, but he definitely landed it and uh, ultimately landed a right cross that wobbled, put him uh, put uh, Barboza on skates. And, you know, Barboza was protesting a little bit, but he was definitely wobbly. And uh, it was the beginning of the end. I felt like uh, maybe could have gone one or two punches more, but you don't necessarily always need to see somebody get dropped and incapacitated to know that the fight's over. But I guess, you know, I'm a little old school in that sense. And obviously if Edson's still got fight in him and he wants to keep standing and throwing, let him go. But, again, that's another discussion for another time. Giga Chikadze, man, he definitely, as I just said, outperformed my expectations and he was, uh, I believe they were ranked 9 and 10 consecutively in the featherweight division. And Giga, now that it's after Tuesday, has raised to the 8th rank. So we're not only going to talk about the fight in a second here. I'm going to talk a little bit about who I think he should go up against next in the featherweight division. He called out Max Holloway afterwards, which obviously reached for the stars. And not saying that fight wouldn't be fireworks and be fun to watch. But he's a little bit lower in the rankings. I think he needs one more before he's going to be up there with that top three. So. Uh, let's go through it. Before I like expand on those thoughts with the main event, I'm going to just go to the bottom. And again, since this is a redo episode, I'm just going to kind of list off the results, maybe touch on a tiny bit from a couple of the more exciting ones, but uh, just read them off pretty much like a stats machine for you guys in case you missed it or missed some of those prelims. Tell you which one of those names you might want to keep a lookout for in the future. But aside from that, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on the fights other than the main ones. So, oh, and as I forgot to mention, this fight night card, UFC Vegas 35, it doubled as the Ultimate Fighter Season finale, the Ultimate Fighter Season 29, the one with Alexander Volkanovsky versus Brian Ortega. So we're going to, at the end, I'll talk about the two Ultimate Fighter winners. There was two weight classes, 185 and 135. But starting off the night, the first fight of the night was Mana Martinez versus Guido Canetti and uh, Martinez, man, this one was... So it was tough, but he had a hard-fought, emotional win. He's the one, I don't know if you guys saw this, that his coach, uh, Sol Solis, uh, a week prior to his fight, ended up unfortunately passing away. So it was tough for him, obviously, to fight back through those emotions, stay focused, and it was a grueling fight. You know, he faced some adversity early on, but he was able to stick it out. So good, hard-fought win for uh, Mana Martinez. But in the second fight, Pat Sabatini ends up getting a heel-hook submission over Jamal Emmers in the first round. They were on the ground at one point, playing a little 50-50 guard, and... Emmers had a toehold, and uh, Sabatini had an inside heel hook, and it was rough. Uh, Jamal Emmers ended up leaving, I think, on a stretcher. He was screaming out in pain. It was He tore his knee right off, man, because he, uh, he wasn't tapping. So 
That one was rough, but moving on, J.J. Aldridge has a dominating three-round performance over Vanessa Demopoulos. I mean, Aldridge, man, she was just in control on all facets of the fight, on the feet, on the ground, and she looked bigger, stronger, and uh, it was just, like I said, overwhelming. Vanessa Demopoulos in all three of those rounds coming away with the unanimous decision, and then Justin Dustin Jacoby takes out Darren Stewart. He TKOs him in the very first round, and then since, it's only been a few days, but Darren Stewart, we it just got announced, I think, earlier today that's been released from the UFC, uh, so it's unfortunate. I, he had like three, three, four losses in a row, but Dustin Jacoby, you know, is a testament to getting cut from the UFC, going back and shoring up some of your deficiencies, and then being able to come back and have success. So, congrats to him on a big win over Darren Stewart. And then the next one is the subject of this week's this segment rules, where with Wellington Terman versus Sam Alvey. So, I'm not going to touch on that right now. Do tune in to this segment rules episode six. It's going to be coming out probably in the next day or so. Uh, but that's when I'll dive deep on this one because there's multiple eye pokes. Wellington Terman ended up getting two points taken away from him in uh, one round during the fight. And Sam Alvey still ended up losing a split decision. So I'm going to be going over that. Make sure to tune in for that. And then Abdul Razak Al-Hassan ends up taking out Alicia DeKirico in the first round. 17 seconds is all it took. One strike, it was a head kick, just knocked him out. DeKirico leaned into it. And, man, it was pretty devastating. He went out cold, so that was a big one. And then, actually, on the card, there was seven finishes out of 12 fights. So, overall, the fight night card did, didn't did disappoint. There was a lot of fun outcomes. And then, Gerald Mearshart, we talked about last week, this guy is like Paul Craig. He just, like, gets beat up. He's even, like, down on the significant strike count and ends up tiring out his opponent. And in the second round, one minute, 50 seconds of the second round, Ends up getting the submission by rear naked choke over Mahmoud Muradov. And then, as I mentioned earlier, this fight night card doubled for the finale for the Ultimate Fighter this season. And there was three fights, six contestants off the Ultimate Fighter. Uh, two finalists fights, one in the middleweight division, one in the bantamweight division. And then you know how sometimes they do this, guys. They'll throw in a couple contestants that were on the season that didn't quite make it to the finale. Not sure of the backstory because I didn't watch this season. But Andre Petrosky faced Michael Gilmore. And it was a back-and-forth action in the first couple rounds. It looked like uh, Gilmore was like, I mean, he was the big underdog. Petrosky was a big favorite. It looked like Gilmore actually uh, surprised Petrosky with some of the things he was doing on the feet. And Petrosky thought he was going to, it looked like he thought he was going to be able to just manhandle him, take him to the ground, and outwork him. But he faced a lot of adversity, and he was able to come through it. But for the for, this fight was back-and-forth, uh, very close, a lot closer than the odds. But Petrosky... Four takedowns total, 46 significant strikes, and three minutes, 12 seconds of the third round. He ends up uh, TKO and Gilmore on the ground with elbows, ground and pound. So congrats to Petrosky for getting the win and uh, having success in his UFC debut. But it looks like he's got a lot of holes to fill, and he's going to have to realize real quick because he was facing another debuter in Gilmore that if he doesn't shore up these these deficiencies, he's not going to last very long. So a uh, good fight, but looking to see what kind of improvements he can make from here. Another, in terms of the tough finalists, Ricky Tercios versus Brady Heistan. And these guys were teammates, both on Team Volkanovski. And, I, again, I didn't watch the season, but I just I did know they were both from the same team and they were relatively close. They didn't have any bad blood. And uh, the commentators, you know, they kind of oversold it a little bit. They said it had um, shades of the original Ultimate Fighter finale, Forrest Griffin and Stefan Bonner. But, I mean... Granted, this fight was high action. There was a lot of scrambling. There was a lot. I mean, there was six takedowns by Heistan, and Tercios ended up getting up every single time, obviously. 100 significant strikes landed by Tercios. Uh, but I don't really want to talk about this fight. You'll see more about this guy, obviously, if he, he was the winner of the season, so you'll see him again. 
But be on the lookout because this guy is what I would call like big Diego Sanchez energy. It's like Diego Sanchez reincarnated. It's hilarious. So if you watch his interviews, you know exactly what I'm talking about if you're a long, long-time MMA fan. So guy's got skills, and he's very interesting and very entertaining. So we'll be seeing him again. So look out for Ricky Churchios, and congratulations. Bantamweight Season 29 Ultimate Fighter winner. And then in the middleweight division Ultimate Fighter finale, it was Brian Battle that came away with the victory over uh, Gilbert Urbina. And it was a second-round submission, the rear naked choke. He also faced some adversity in the beginning of this fight. He was busted up a little bit, and Urbina came for it, man. He was trying to dump it all because he dumped it all early because he was a last-minute replacement. Uh, unfortunately, Battle's original opponent was injured, so uh, Gilbert Urbina came, stepped up. I believe it was like a week's notice, not even, and so he, he went for it. And Battle took on some damage. He lost his mouthpiece a couple times. It was an interesting fight, but ultimately he was able to overcome and get the submission in the second round. So those are your winners in the middleweight division for the Ultimate Fighter Season 29, Brian Battle. And the Bantamweight division, Ricky Tercios. So we'll see how far these guys go from here. The Ultimate Fighter has a pretty decent track record. There's a lot of top five and title contenders and, and multiple title holders that came out of that um, the Ultimate Fighter. So we'll see how far these goes. I mean, 29 seasons, uh, that's actually not even it. There's, I believe, close to 50 seasons. 29 were just in the United States and just like their numbered ones. So that's that's been around forever and... Uh, yeah, I, I'm sorry. I lost interest. It's just a little saturated. I, there's so much content to ingest that I have to pick and choose, and it's just not the ones, not the one that I go to. But that's nothing against these guys. It's one of the, it's one of, if not the most difficult competitions in the world. And if you can get through that, then normally, like I just said, you know, stands the test of time, and you normally do pretty well. So uh, we keep a lookout for these guys. All right. So what would I consider to uh, be the real co-main event was. Daniel Rodriguez versus Kevin Lee. Another person that stepped up somewhat last minute was Daniel Rodriguez. But D-Rod's always in the gym. He's always training. He don't give a fuck. Kevin Lee coming off multiple knee surgeries, almost two years off. Um, you know, other injuries also. Just things getting pushed back. His opponent, Sean Brady, getting rescheduled twice. So Kevin Lee just obviously really wanted to get in there and get uh, get back to action. And, you know, Daniel Rodriguez is no nobody's bitch. He'll always take the fight. He stepped up last minute. And even though... This was the, I believe, second camp, full camp for Kevin Lee under Frost Hobby at TriStar. Um, and, you know, focusing on rehab and stuff like that can sometimes actually make you level up in terms of your athleticism. But Kevin Lee uh, has always been kind of like the perfect candidate for a 165 division. He's a tweener. And I felt like uh, D-Rod had significantly better takedown defense than uh, most of Kevin Lee's previous opponents, especially up at welterweight that I felt like is going to be really difficult for Kevin be able to get uh, Rodriguez to the ground. Not that Kevin's like, you know, terrible on the feet, but I felt like he at least needed to mix it up and have the threat of the takedown to even be able to have success on D-Rod because uh, Daniel Rodriguez had a significant height and reach advantage, and he was a way better striker. In my opinion, he's able to keep uh, his opponents at distance and snap his punch punches and catch his opponents at the end of his punches, so therefore maintaining that distance. And it was the apex, so it was a smaller octagon, and I was worried that maybe Kevin Lee was going to be able to get D-Rod up against the fence and eventually either slow down the fight and take him down But because um, I went with D-Rod in this fight. Uh, but Kevin Lee, you know, when he had those small amounts of success in doing that, uh, Daniel Rodriguez was able to scrape himself off the back of the fence and then continue to circle back to the center and keep it standing. And uh, he just he put on a clinic, in my opinion. De uh, Kevin Lee did have some success. He landed some uh, really... Uh, stinging shots at points, and, you know, he did get in on a few takedowns really deep, but, again, D-Rod was able to thwart most of them. 
Uh, Kevin Lee was able to land three takedowns overall throughout the fight, but nothing significant really happened from them. The first round, I would say Rodriguez probably dropped because he was on the floor for the majority of the round, but he just kept himself safe and then made sure that that didn't happen again in the second and third and ended up walking away with unanimous decision. So it's tough. Kevin Lee's got all the talent and abilities in the world, but he's had a tough go. Um, he's on a four or five fight skid, you know, and he hasn't uh, he hasn't had a win in a significant amount of time. And it sucks because, like I said, I feel like he's like right in between that 155, 170 weight class and he can't seem to have, uh, can't seem to string any wins together, even though, you know, he's, he's a dog. He wants to face tough opponents, but this one was, you know, at least in terms of rankings, a significant step back in competition. So it's not a good look for Kevin Lee. We'll see. You go back to the drawing board. Unfortunately, if you listen to the post-fight press conference, Dana White had some, you know, remarks that didn't seem too promising. He was saying we're going to have to figure out what's next for Kevin Lee and whether or not that's here or not, you know, referring to the UFC. So um, I like Kevin Lee as a person. I think he, you know, works his butt off and he's done a lot to get himself back to this point. So I always want to see success for these guys. I just don't know if it's going to be here or if he's going to have to, like, Dustin Jacoby, like even Brandon Moreno, who came back and has won a title after being cut from the UFC. Maybe that's what is needed for Kevin Lee at this stage of his career, to go back to the regional scene and really decide, you know, if he really wants to do this and prove to himself that he's way better than these guys at the lower ranks and that he just needs to, you know, put things together in order to have that true and authentic championship run, which a lot of people think he still has in him, but... You know, it's not looking good. So we'll see how it goes for Kevin Lee. But Daniel Rodriguez, I am pumped for. I believe this is now seventh win in a row. 120 significant strikes he landed in this fight over Kevin Lee's 56. Again, that second and third round, man, he just maintained distance, controlled where the, and dictated where the fight took place. And, you know, he's, he's a not only is he just a born fighter, like he just loves to scrap, but he's like one of, our, you know, like some people describe as like a technical brawler where he's not afraid to just stand in the center and bang, but he's... Also going to be, you know, utilizing head movement and looking to bait you into throwing so he can slip and counter with his own hard shots. And this guy, um, he just, he's, he's an interesting character. He's somewhat come out of nowhere over the last few years. He's been training a, a lot of different places, but primarily at the BMF Ranch in New Mexico. So I'm all about it. He's, he's, he runs with a lot of the people that I, I look up to and I look to hopefully run with in terms of their circles eventually in this days in terms of the Diaz brothers terms of the you know the scrap pack in terms of can't stop crazy crew up with there with joe Schilling and kevin ross and all those guys so shouts to daniel rodriguez for getting the job done you look great so we'll see what they put him up against next so the main event guys i was uh, telling you earlier giga chikadze outperformed my expectations i'm sure he outperformed a lot of people to be honest and uh, even though he was the favorite in this matchup i you know didn't have a lot of confidence in him going the full five rounds and Edson Barboza, you know, championship-level fighter. He's been five-round main event fighter, at least been five rounds multiple times. And he actually looked great dropping down to 145 and has got on a two-fight win streak. And I felt like Edson Barboza's experience and overall well-roundedness, if he needed to take it into the grappling exchanges, would have been the difference in this fight. But it didn't even get to that point. It didn't evolve into a later, you know, three, four, fifth-round gut-check type fight where Edson Barboza was going to be able to show that veteran side in that championship uh, medal because Giga Chikadze just essentially uh, chopped him down. He picked at him, he picked him apart, and just systematically took away Barboza's strengths while at the same time, you know, like I said, like picking and stabbing at Barboza the entire time and eventually opened him up for a significant right hand that put uh, Barboza on Queer Street. He pushed him back against the fence, 
ended up dropping him to the ground, and there was a couple uh, submission attempts that almost, they looked close on uh, Giga's side. He was, I think it originally was uh, some sort of modified guillotine, and then he switched to a Dars, and there was just a couple scrambles because he had Barboza hurt. That almost, like you even said in the post fight, which I'll jump to, he was trying to show that if he could submit him, he wanted to do it because he's been working on all facets of his game. Obviously, people know him as a kickboxer coming from that in his previous career. And But a lot of people uh, considered this to be, at least Giga and Edson were talking about it being the fight for the best striker in the lightweight division, or I'm sorry, the featherweight division. Uh, Giga says in MMA, you know, and that's arguable and which we'll get to in terms of Giga's call out there's a few other people that might have something to say about that you know like Max Holloway Calvin Cater a few other people on the strikers list but it was a lot of fun it didn't disappoint while it lasted but it didn't go as long as I thought it would I thought again that Edson Barboza would be able to you know crack some kicks from the outside counter really quickly maybe chop up that lead leg with the calf kicks and just you know drag it into the deep waters but uh, a lot of people were talking about the speed here, and a lot of people were give, saying that Giga had a, a significant speed advantage over Edson, and I, I don't think I saw that. What I think I saw was Giga's vision and reflexes that were faster than Edson's. I feel like their speed was actually about the same. I mean, how can you be faster than the speed of light? Both these guys were so fast, and they're very, very effective when they do land, but I felt like Jakadze's slightly different style and slightly more elusive style with more you know footwork and more switching of stance and more you know, kind of leading and setting traps and countering when he has to. He's trying to get his opponents to to go in, to walk into certain positions and certain, you know, zones so that he can therefore have the angle or, or at least have a head start on whatever angle he's trying to take. So his approach is a little bit different. Barboza's is a little bit more plotting. He walks you down, tries to cut you off, tries to turn into a phone booth fight and just, uh, you know, basically feels like if it's a coin flip and we're, uh, you know, tit for tat, and if he's got to just slip and counter for the most part, he feels like he's uh, going to win those exchanges. Well, Giga never really even allowed that to happen. He kept the right sort of distance uh, since he had the slight advantage on Barboza that Barboza wasn't even able to land very many counter leg kicks. He had a reach disadvantage, so like uh, it was just difficult for Barboza to really get in the range he needed to even land significant strikes, uh, total strikes, significant strikes, rather a 60 Landed significant strikes by Giga Chikadze. Only 33 for Edson Barboza. Uh, again, as I mentioned, two submission attempts. And then they counted uh, it for two separate knockdowns. I only really remember the one. But um, again, from the outside, Giga was able to mix up his shot selection. And not everything was like, you know, devastating and damaging. But it was the accumulation and the fact that he was mixing it up and not really ever letting Barboza get set and not ever allowing himself to get cornered. Uh, and he would always circle out. He would always make sure that he didn't get into a position where Barboza could uh, could tee off on him. So with that, Barboza being a little bit plotting and Giga being a little bit more uh, mobile, there was m- moments in time where Chikadze's reflexes and ability to dart in and out and cover distance from the outside was just faster uh, than Barboza could account for. And if you watch the Weasels breakdown, there was actually something interesting because Barboza had the reach disadvantage. It was ill-advised that he was trying to counter Barboza's straight left hand with his own uh, check left hook. Um, And, you know, normally you can't go over the top and just lean back with your check left hook if the person's got a size advantage on you and if they're throwing a straight shot because straight shots down the middle are always going to be looping shots. So if Edson didn't take that left side angle, you know, just leaning back and trying to throw a check left hook wasn't going to work. And you saw that, that he got caught with that 
uh, right hand by by, by Jukadze several different times. And that's ultimately the shot that I feel like I believe, if I believe correctly, rocked him the most towards the end. And uh, Jukadze, um, one thing I have to give him credit for because, you know, not every fighter's got the ability to do this and especially get someone who can see it coming like an Edson Barboza with the experience he has. But Giga Jukadze wasn't going to be able to just th- go out there and throw his Giga kick and land it against someone like Barboza. You could tell Barboza had worked on the defense for that. There were several times he raised his rear leg and checked leg kicks, which is always a delight to see. Beautiful technique. But if you guys have ever been out there, and if you know anything about playing chess out there, what you do is you try to program your opponent to uh, defend or expect one thing so that you can open up the opportunity for another. And if you watch throughout that fight, you get Chikese through several head kicks uh, with his left leg on Barboza, all of which Barboza you know, blocked, uh, and he was raising up his right arm and doing a uh, basically a, a double check where your left hand comes across to help block that kick. But my point is is that he saw those head kicks coming well enough to be able to block them and block them three or four times significantly thrown with power so that he knows, oh, shit, I better make sure to get my arms up there and block those, which basically opened up the opportunity for Giga to throw his liver kick because Edson was programmed to go up and block the head kicks. So, you know, it's it sounds simple, but... When there's all that chaos going on and you both kind of can see what you're doing to feint and try to trick each other and open up opportunities, when someone's able to program their opponent that well and then open up a, a shot and land it clean, that's some high-level shit. So um, ultimately, I don't think Edson Barboza's washed. I think Giga Chikadze is just con- continuing to progress uh, exponentially over his last three fights. Had a little bit of a tough go at the beginning, I'm not, not going to lie, but he recognized he you know, couldn't just come in with the striking ability and expect to go far. So he's worked on everything, which I feel like has actually even given him more confidence to uh, get off on the feet because he knows you know, if he has to get back up or if he has to defend takedowns or if he has to defend himself on the ground, at least he's got the confidence to know that he's been putting in the work on those uh, skill sets also. At the end of the day, this was a fun fight. I felt like you know, I would have liked to see it go a little bit longer just because it was such a striker's delight like I expected, but... It was a little frustrating to watch from an Edson Barboza fan and betting standpoint because, you know, Giga just wasn't allowing him to get off. He was disturbing his rhythm. He offered too many options. He was overwhelming Barboza. Barboza's uh, plotting style wasn't able to ever track down Chikadze and allow him to get off that power that he's so well known for. Um, again, Barboza did land some strikes, but, you know, ultimately the accumulation uh, wasn't there, and it was for Chikadze, so... In the third round, he ended up putting him away one minute, 44 seconds of the third round. Congratulations, Giga Chikadze, on his uh, successful victory over a big name like Boboza in his very first main event in his UFC career. So, obviously, uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, he's he's only moved up to number eight in the rankings, which I think is fair because there's a lot of different people in the rankings uh, ahead of him that, you know, I feel like deserve to be there. Um you know, I, I alluded to it earlier. Giga called out Max Holloway in his post-fight debut or fo- post-fight interview saying that, you know, he's the best striker in MMA and Max says he's the best boxer, so let's go. But uh, Max Holloway was scheduled to fight Yair Rodriguez and that's I guess, fell apart. And so giving the timeline of everything, I feel like Max deservedly is owed after his Calvin Cater performance um, another shot at the title. So he's probably going to wait out to see what happens in the fight between Ortega and Volkanovski? So in the meantime, I don't, I don't uh, begrudge Max for doing that. I felt like he was just taking the fight timeline wise, and it was a tough opponent in Yair, and you know he likes to stay busy, but ultimately already earned that title shot. So no, uh, you know all the power to him. 
So as far as Chikadze, I feel like uh, out of the people that are ahead of him that aren't quite in that top two, top three, or championship title fight conversation, the one that stands out to me that I want to see is uh, Josh Emmett. He hasn't. Uh, he's coming off the Shane Burgos fight, Shane Burgos win. He had, a, I believe, a severe knee injury. He's always getting injured, but I think it's time for him to come back out and uh, test his mettle, and I think that that works because I think he's number seven or six, so just above him in the rankings, and I think that uh, is well, he has some distinct challenges that um, I feel like could potentially expose Giga Chikadze if he hasn't really, uh, if he hasn't been able to really shore up those deficiencies in terms of the grappling and, and stuff like that. So uh, Shane, I'm sorry, Josh Emmett is really good at mixing things up. He's lightning fast himself. He moves around a lot too, so not like Barboza. I feel like like Chikadze, um, Emmett is more elusive and mobile, so that could pose some problems either way. I'm not saying I I, I predict. A Josh Emmett win, uh, I actually probably would lean uh, to Giga Chikadze's way this early out, but that's just uh, of the people in the division uh, above him, I feel like that would be the logical next step. Now, if you just want to keep the striking affair you know, train going, and this, I would love to see him versus Yair Rodriguez. Yair's number three, like I said, was previously scheduled to face Max Holloway, who's ranked number one in the division. Um, so I, I just think... You know, it's up to you guys. I'm all for it. I love watching just an all-striking affair, too, pri- primarily on the feet. It's always action. It's always it's always fun. I'm I'm partial to striking. Don't get me wrong. But um, in terms of, like, the logical next step, like I just said, it would be Josh Emmett because that could test Giga's career, like, career trajectory. If he can get past Josh Emmett, now we could see the level of skills in all areas that might allow him to contend up in the top five and the top three and potentially make – and run at the title. So it's up to you guys. I'm da- definitely down for the all-striking affair. Yaya Rodriguez, not sure if he would take that fight, given the performance he just witnessed of Giga and how far back he is in the rankings. But, you know, a guy could dream. But logical next step that I think is most likely uh, to happen would either be Josh Emmett, number seven, or even uh, Arnold Allen at number six, because he also poses that takedown and wrestling threat. But we'll see where it goes either way. Again, congrats, Giga Chikadze. Successful main event appearance. And we'll see where they put him next. And that wraps it for the UFC Vegas 35 recap. But before I let you guys go for this episode, I need to list off this amazing fucking stat card. UFC 268 was announced on the broadcast this weekend. And just the main card was released. But this card is fireworks. I mean, easily top two, if not the best card of the year. Um, And I wanted to tie up a little bit of a knot. Remember a couple weeks ago. I was talking about Bobby Green and how he told me he had another fight booked already and that he couldn't tell me the opponent, but he could tell me he was supposed to be at MSG. Well, there hasn't been any resolution about Michael Chandler uh, and his vaccination status, but he is was announced to be on the card against, as you know, Justin Gaethje, so that's going to be fucking bonkers as well. But the entire card hasn't been announced yet, but just from the main card, this I, I'm so fucking pumped. So I'm just basically going to read you guys the main card and uh, talk about a little bit of the implications for some of these fights. Not doing the breakdown or picks or anything for it, because this isn't until November. So for now, I'm just going to list off the fights that were just announced, because there's a lot of them, and they're all fucking barn burners, every last one of them. So, of course, the main event of UFC 268 is the rematch between Kamara Usman and Colby Covington. They went to that five-round. Uh, wasn't a decision. Kamara Usman put away Colby Covington late in the fifth round of their last fight, and... Uh, very much so the toughest test of Kamaru Usman's career. Colby Covington has been chomping at the bit. 
He got one win in between. Has been looking to get that meet rematch, so he finally got it. And then another rematch of Rose Namajunas versus Weili Zhang for the Women's Strawweight Championship. If you guys recall, back in Jacksonville, Weili Zhang versus Rose Namajunas. Rose head kick KO'd her in the first round. And a lot of people thought it was going to be Carla Esparza next because she also has that storyline with her. Uh, she actually has a win over Rose Namajunas back in the old tough days. But uh, Weili Zhang, you know, a lot of people... Really wanted to see them run this back and kind of similar to the how Rose beat Joanna in their first meeting really quickly with just a left hook. Dropped her, knocked her out. Well, they wanted to see if that would play out differently if she just didn't catch her early. So I think a lot of people wanted to see a more of a drawn out, full uh, full aspect fight. And we'll see how it goes. But either way, I could I could watch Rose Namajunas and Wei Li Zhang fight 10 times in a row. Like these guys, these are top level women's strawweights and I'm really excited to see it tough break for Carla uh, I'm sure hopefully she'll be waiting in the wings and be able to get the winner of this fight but uh, yeah that's the second fight so two title fights right off the top guys and then we have the fucking molten lava hot fight between Justin Gaethje and Michael Chandler after that then we have Sean Strickland was booked in a fight against Luke Rockhold Luke Rockhold is making his return 185 pounds after a co- almost a couple years off actually more than that I have to double check and an unsuccessful foyer up at light heavyweight. So, obviously, Sean Strickland and Luke Rockhold kind of got into it online uh, after Sean Strickland's win over Uriah Hall. And Sean Strickland had that kind of little tussle up at Ruka with uh, Orlando, that jiu-jitsu guy. Luke Rockhold's been training at Ruka lately, so I'm sure they maybe bumped into each other a little bit there. Anyways, they're making this fight, which is incredible. Luke Rockhold is gigantic for the weight class, but again, he's coming off of a very significant layoff. And, you know, he's, he's been not having success as of late, so he doesn't necessarily have that momentum behind him, which that's all, that's exactly what Sean Strickland has. He's coming off, I believe, four wins in a row. Tougher and tougher competition every time. The most recent win over Uriah Hall is, you know, went five rounds. Tough, grueling fight, but he got the unanimous decision. Pretty decisive fight. So an interesting stylistic matchup and some uh, really, I feel like, important implications for both of these guys. Luke Rockhold, can he come back? Can he stay relevant and maintain his spot at middleweight and, and make another title run, or is he probably on the latter end of his career and maybe needs to look uh, to doing some other things? Or, or is Sean Strickland going to continue to rise up the ranks and be uh, an ex-champion in Luke Rockhold in the, in the middleweight division and someone that is a very, very extremely tough, tough test at this point in his career? So um, Sean Strickland could keep this momentum going, or if Luke Rockhold's going to stop it. So we'll see, but I'm really, really looking forward to that fight. Then we have Frankie Edgar against another Ruka Gym member, Marlon Cheeto Vera. 17-7 Vera versus 23-9 and Frankie Edgar. It's crazy to see how much experience that Marlon Vera has now, considering you know, I've been watching him for so long since he was you know, very inexperienced and still green. Now facing such a legend and veteran in Frankie Edgar. I think this is a perfect time for both these guys to face each other. Um, tough break, I feel like, for the, the legend and ex-lightweight champion Frankie Edgar because I feel like this is Cheeto's time and Frankie Edgar is about to be, uh, you know, Marlon Vera is basically, this is what one of those things you call like a signature win over a big name and an ex-champion, kind of like when Dominic Cruz, I'm sorry, when Dominic Reyes beat Chris Weidman and then after that was offered a, a title shot. So that's what this kind of fight is for someone like Cheeto at this point in his career. So we'll see. We'll see if Frankie Edgar can bounce back off his devastating KO loss from Corey Sanhagen. Yeah, but that's one I'm really looking forward to. Also, all these are just insane. And then we have a sneaky high-level women's bantamweight fight. I feel like this one's totally flying below the radar. But this one's Jermaine Durandamy versus Irene Aldana. 
Uh, ten and four Durandamy versus thirteen and six Aldana. That's their overall MMA careers. Aldana is one of the best strikers in terms of boxing in the women's bantamweight division. And Jermaine Durandamy, the Iron Lady, has got a multiple world championships in kickboxing outside the UFC, and is is predominantly considered one of the best strikers in the women's MMA. And she gave even Amanda Nunes a run for her money on the feet, forcing Amanda Nunes to have to clinch her up and take her down in order to win the fight. And Aldana, Aldana, although she is you know, fairly well-rounded. She is definitely primarily a striker. So these two women going at it on the feet, I feel like is going to be very high level, and it's going to be interesting to see because Durandamy obviously has a height and reach advantage. She's got that leg reach advantage. She can predominantly utilize those legs to keep Aldana at the at distance if Aldana is going to be looking to get into boxing range. But Aldana, if she can counter maybe some of those kicks with a quick reflex, see it coming, and just go for it. Sometimes that's how you got to get in on your taller, longer opponents is when they throw kicks. I feel like Aldana could crack Jermaine with something insanely hard because she does crack for a woman's bantamweight. So this is definitely an interesting fight for me. There's a lot of interesting uh, implications in terms of title uh, shot because Durandamy has already faced Amanda Nunes, but I believe that was the at 145. So now I think she's trying to work her way back up to get an opportunity down at bantamweight. And then Aldana, newer to the UFC, hasn't faced Amanda yet, so that's some new parity there. And she definitely is a high-level in terms of uh, her striking and and it'll be just interesting to see how this one plays out so i'm looking forward to it and then bobby green bobby king green is coming back quick turnaround after that fight against Rafael fiziv and he's facing raging ally quinta or is he because if you saw on ariel hawani raging now was like uh well as the ufc is fucking doing this shit again which they're known to do which is sometimes when you're in title negotiations I'm sorry, contract negotiations for a fight, but if it's sometimes only just verbally agreed to, they still will announce it. And so I guess that's what Ally and Quinda is claiming has happened in this case. But Bobby Green hasn't really, uh, you know, said too much on social media about it other than reposting some of the, you know, the announcements, the fight announcements on social media. So maybe this still isn't like ink on paper on both sides, but Ally Quinta is from the area. I mean, I'm sure he's not going to turn down an opportunity to fight at MSG. Uh, he's, you know, he's long, long Island guy, New York guy. So my assumption is that it's going to happen. He just hasn't gotten the exact uh, details of the contract ironed out the way he would have liked uh, and hasn't exactly signed. So verbal agreement or not, they announced it and everyone's stoked about it. It's a huge card. And now Ally Quinta has that pressure to just go ahead and accept maybe the last offer before that. You know what I'm saying? Like, so they try to negotiate publicly by making you look like you're scared if you're the one that comes and like pulls out just because you maybe weren't happy with your last-minute negotiations. So they'll just, ah, eh, fuck it, we'll announce it. You verbally agreed, and then now what are you going to do? You're going to look bad and look like you don't want the fight, or do you want the fight? So sometimes they do this shit, and that's what I think Al had stated on Ariel's show that he's claiming has happened. But nevertheless, I'm not I'm not concerned about that. I'm, I'm pretty certain that the fight's going to happen, and I'm extremely pumped for my boy Bobby Green, man. Tough guy. And Ally Quinta has faced Khabib and done well, so people know that Ally Quinta is no slouch, and he's up there in terms of skill, rankings, and talent level. Be damned. Like, everyone knows Al is, is going to bring it. He's a tough fight for anybody. So if my boy Bobby Green can go out there and do his thing, uh, I feel like he's got a lot of advantages in this fight. I honestly do. I'm not just rooting for my guy, but I, let me take a look real quick. It's, I'm just assuming attributes-wise, he's going to be, like, significantly taller with a longer reach. Let me just look at this real quick. No, I guess I'm wrong. So what happens when you assume Bobby Green has a one-inch reach advantage on him. That's it. At least on topology, it says they're both 5'10", and that is 71 to 70-inch reach 
for Bobby Green. So I don't know. Uh, but they both like to box. They both like to keep it in that relative mid-range. I feel like uh, this, the style matchup does favor Bobby Green because he normally never has someone that's willing to stand and box with him. It's either like all the way on the outside dealing with kicks galore or they're going to try to take him down. So uh, because of that, I feel like that's going to allow Bobby to really shine in this fight. But don't discount Ray Janelle. I think he's got one, some of the best boxing. He's completely underrated in terms of the boxing, his boxing skills in, in the UFC. And uh, so I feel like it's going to be a very fun and exciting fight. Bobby Green uh, has a, like extremely very, very good takedown defense. And that's going to be important in this fight because the one uh, thing that I feel like Ally Quinta has in terms of a significant advantage is his jiu-jitsu game, his submission game, just because he is a high-level black belt under Henzo Gracie and you know, he, he a lot of people don't give him the credit he deserves, but he's a phenomenal jiu-jitsu player. So, in my opinion, as long as Bobby keeps it on the feet, my early lean is that he's going to be able to touch Ally Quinta up. Ally Quinta is tough as nails, so most likely go to decision. But either way, this fight card is fucking stacked, and it's it really, like, only flaw this fight card has is that it's fucking months away and that it's in November. So, if you can hurry the fuck up and get, uh, get here to UFC 268, that'd be dope. But uh, other than that, guys, that's really all I got. But make sure to stay tuned because even if it, it might even be out now, I'm going to be dropping all three episodes this week. This particular episode, episode 103, then this segment rules number six, and then DLSS Pick Show number two, which is looking forward to this upcoming weekend, Darren Till versus Derek Brunson in the fight my event coming up this Saturday. So I hope you guys enjoyed the show, but that's it. That does it for this week's installment of the D-Love Special Sauce Podcast. Hope you guys liked the show. If you did, go over to Apple and iTunes. Give us a five-star rating and a positive review. While you're there, turn the notification bell on. That way you're on top of all the most current content. And if you're already supporting a small independent podcast, please do check out and support all the small businesses that support us just like you guys by listening every week. We got Monique Taylor with Strong Women Designs. We got DreamLog Collections, my girl Nora, custom handmade jewelry. Check her out. OC Party Rentals, Paint Bay, the journey of a modern-day painter, Upper Glass Tent, Eating Buttery Pancakes is getting people shredded, Vargas Auto Spa, California Shirt Smith. Check out Justin for some custom print works. Blake Builder and the Builder System, Mac Noodle Sabachi Chef, Ricardo with Neighborhood Auto Care, South Meals, Angie Snyder, and of course, they love Tumor Tonic. But last and not least, MMT Fitness. Make sure to check them out on Instagram. Make sure to go out and check out the gym. Exit Avery Parkway off the 5 Freeway. First class is always free. Tell them the DLSS podcast sent you. But that does it for this week, guys. Until next week, same time and same place. Enjoy the fights.